Our reading today is from Mark chapter 3, verses 13 to 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. These are the twelve he appointed, Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name Bonergus, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Thanks, Michelle. Good morning, everybody. It's good to have you here for the third week of A Fig Tree in Bloom. I think it's appropriate to check that we're all on the same page with a couple of ideas. So let me ask you this. You own an apple orchard and uh, it's season and you want to check if your apple trees are healthy. Uh, What are you going to look for on the apple trees? Apples, of course you are, because you're good apple farmers. So you understand that healthy trees, like Jesus said, produce the healthy fruit they're intended for. Okay, let me check another thing with you. Have a look at the screen. And uh, as this picture comes up, tell me, which one of these fig trees is a healthy one? Yeah, I don't know what you said, but I assume you're right. It's the one with all the trees, with all the leaves and stuff like that. So you can tell that when, when trees are healthy, they have a look about them and they have a produce that they produce. And that has been what we have been talking about. This series is called The Fig Tree in Bloom. And we are asking ourselves under God and indeed reminding ourselves under God, what does it look like for Fig Tree Anglican to be in bloom, to be healthy, to be all God intends it to be? We've come to understand that there is a fruit that God has called for from us. Some people call this a mission. Uh, You can call it that. It is to build a community of grace committed to making disciples of the Lord Jesus. Someone asks you, what does your church do? Find your own language, but tell them. It's a community of grace where you get to start over. And we're trying to help one another be more and more like Jesus. We're making disciples here. And someone says, well, what does it look like when it's all working? Well, as Steve taught us last week, it looks faithful, it looks adventurous, and it looks compassionate. That's what our bushy leaves look like. So we get this idea of healthy trees produce healthy fruit, provided they're fruit trees, and healthy trees have a certain look about them. And this church, when it's healthy, has a certain produce and has a certain look. And so today it's only appropriate that as we consider the roots... We think, how does this all work? What are the things that hold this tree up and cause it not to blow over in a storm? How does it get its nutrients? How is it doing this fruit producing? Today I want to talk to you about how our church discerns under Jesus that we go about this God-ordained task of being a community of grace committed to making disciples of Jesus. Before I do, I should clarify... What is this disciple-making thing that we always talk about? Let me give you my understanding. What is disciple-making? It's taking the heart of Jesus that has been cultivated in you 
and by the power of the Holy Spirit, reproducing it in another. Can you see that through the history of the Christian church? Jesus took his heart and he reproduced it in 12 and he called them to take the heart that he had cultivated in them and by the power of the Holy Spirit to reproduce that in others. And so you hear language from people like the Apostle Paul who says, you became imitators. He says things like, you remember that pattern of teaching we gave you? There is an imitation that takes place. And so make no mistake, teaching is remarkably important in disciple making, but it's only a component. There's teaching, there's mentoring, there is reshaping, there is modelling, there is the cultivation of what God has done for you in another. So how do you do it? Well, our church, or better, Christ's church, of which we are members, has followed his pattern and discerned that to make disciples, it probably makes sense to do it the way Jesus did it. And so as you'll see on the screen, we believe in connecting one another with Jesus. We believe in growing one another with Jesus. And we believe in sending one another out for Jesus. And so today as I take you into Mark 3, I want to show you that this is not something we made up. This is in fact a pattern of discipleship that Jesus started with his first disciples that today we still believe in. And today we want to call one another to practice so that today we might continue to be a community of grace committed to making disciples of Jesus. So let us talk about connecting people to Jesus. Mark 3.13. If you don't have a Bible handy, you'll see it on the screen. We start with what Jesus did. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted and they came to him. Let me encourage you from the get-go, when it comes to connecting yourself and connecting others with Jesus, this is not something you need to be scared of. I suspect if you think about it the wrong way, you might. But here's how I think I can help you this morning. Jesus made a choice. He called those he wanted to him and they came. I wonder if sometimes when we think about connecting people to Jesus, we almost hear the echo of an ancient pharaoh who said to the people of Egypt, now you'll make bricks without straw. And somehow in your mind you think, how am I going to connect them with Jesus? I've read parts of the scripture that say that outside of Christ we're dead in our sin and transgression. I've read passages like Ezekiel's vision of a valley of dry bones where only God can reclothe those bones. How? I've read passages that say that the the world, our minds are are, are deceived and there's darkness and all these sorts of things. Let me encourage your heart and remind you that in this instance, Jesus called to him those he wanted. That's not out of character for God. This is what God did and we learnt about in previous weeks with Israel. Though the whole earth is mine, I've chosen you. Can I encourage you this morning, brothers and sisters, when we want to connect people with Jesus, we are not making bricks without straw. Instead, like happy kids, we're on a treasure hunt. Because God has said, I've chosen people for myself. Find them. The gospel's like your little metal detector. God says there's a treasure out there. 
Talk about Jesus, and every now and then you're going to hear, beep, 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 found one. Not bricks without straw, but a treasure hunt. Be encouraged that Jesus made a choice. God makes a choice. We are on a treasure hunt. Now, here's the thing that Jesus does with his choice. He called, or a hard translation, he summoned those he wanted. And they came. This is weird in the ancient world and it's weird today. Uh, Your phone rings. Ring, 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 ring. Hello, Shane speaking. Hi, Shane. It's the University of Wollongong. We are summoning you. You're going to study here now. Don't I get to choose my university? No, we're calling you to us. Okay. Um, What will I be studying? You'll be studying one of our lecturers. Does he teach a topic? You'll be studying him. Okay, here's what I mean. Jesus called them, often in this time, disciples would find a rabbi that they sought to study under, like we find universities and apply. But Jesus said, I summon you, I call you. And what does he call them to? Does he do what other rabbis used to do in the time? I'm calling you to study the tradition I understand the Torah through. Does he say, I'm calling you to the school of the elders like Rabbi Shammai? No, he doesn't call them to a subject. He doesn't say, you're going to come and study Jewish anthropology and the history of the Samarians. Nope. He summons them, he chooses them, and he calls them to himself. And they come to him. What do we make of this? Firstly, when we're connecting to Jesus, it's not bricks without straw. It's a treasure hunt. Be encouraged. Number two, can I ask you a question? If in ancient times God called people to himself, in New Testament times, if Jesus, as we have here, Jesus called people to himself. Brothers and sisters, where do you stand on this question? Do you believe today that Jesus is still calling people to himself? Or is he done? Got enough. Packed up shop. Went back to heaven. It's over to you now. Or did he say, I'm with you to the end of the age? Or has he promised that all that the Father has given to me, I won't lose? Do you believe today that Jesus is still calling people to himself? Do you believe that God is sovereign? Do you believe that God, when God chooses and he calls by his irresistible grace, people come or do you think sometimes God sits at home crying and disappointed because he called someone and they said no thanks now when God called they came and today when God calls they come and when God chooses we get to find and so please be encouraged you are not in a space of making bricks without straw when we talk about connecting people to Jesus We talk about an exciting treasure hunt, a space to find the treasure that God has said, I have planted, I have chosen. In the power of a God who says, and those I have chosen, I call, I summon, and they come. And you get to be my mouthpiece. And who are they called to? They're called to Jesus. Now, here's one of the interesting things about connecting to Jesus Connection to Jesus demands disconnection. To connect to Jesus, 
for everyone who's ever done it means you're going to have to disconnect from something else. Consider the sons of Zebedee, chapter 3, verse 17. There were these guys among these 12, James, the son of Zebedee and his brother John. To them, Jesus gave the name Bonages, which means sons of thunder. You can imagine Jesus as that Michael Buffer boxing. Are you ready to rumble with the sons of thunder? Which might mean um, the noisy ones. It might mean the aggressive ones or something like that, which could make sense because the sons of thunder at one stage traveling with Jesus will ask him, Lord, should we call down fire from heaven and just this whole place? So they're energetic guys. Uh, John's one of them, man renowned for love and a great long uh, ministry as an apostle. I suspect these guys go from being sons of Zebedee to just dramatically loud for the gospel. Like real thuns, thuns, real sons of thunder who uh, rain out the praises of God. But in being called by Jesus, as Mark will tell us back in Mark chapter 1, they did leave their father Zebedee and the hired men and the boats and their family business behind. There was a disconnection and a reconnection with Jesus. What I'm talking about here, when you understand that connecting to Jesus means disconnecting from somebody else, that means our church that believes in connecting people to Jesus means that our church is a church that believes in the ministry of repentance. Now, when you hear the language of repentance too many times, you've heard pulpits. We don't have a pulpit. Lectins, this one's glass, so you don't want to hit it. Uh, you, you, there's been a lot of aggression about it. And maybe sometimes there is some righteous anger required, but let me try and recast a little bit this idea of repentance. Repentance not only means turning away, repentance very much has a stronger theme of who or what you turn to. And so these guys, these sons of Zebedee, who would become sons of thunder, they would turn from a hope they had in the business. Was the business evil? I can't see anything to suggest that it was. Seems like things are going well and righteously and all those sorts of things. But they turned their hope to Jesus. What we're talking about here in the ministry of repentance or connecting to Jesus and therefore disconnecting from something else is to discover a greater hope to discover something higher, something fuller, something that leads to more, something that is eternal, and someone who is more for you than any other idol you can imagine. All of us are hoping in something, aren't we? It's been pretty powerfully argued that most humans are pretty passionate about being approved, liked and received by others. A lot of humans desire some kind of power, a voice, some kind of influence. I'd say most of us kind of like to be comfortable. Most of us like to be secure and safe. And often we will pursue different sorts of things and put our hope in them, not because we're evil necessarily, but because we feel the need for these things. And so we put our hope in things that will satisfy there are times in connecting to Jesus you may legitimately need to turn away from something that is fundamentally evil and in rebellion to God. And there are times where it's just about understanding that in Jesus Christ there's a higher hope. In Jesus Christ there's something better than the sons of Zebedee would ever find in the sea. 
In Jesus Christ, there's something better than I would ever have found on a bicycle. In Jesus Christ, there's something better than you will find anywhere else in the world. There's a higher, higher hope. The ministry of repentance is not a ministry of condemnation. The ministry of repentance is the ministry of hope where we find hope eternal in Christ. How do you go about it? How can I encourage you? Well, I hope I can encourage you by saying when you're connecting people to Jesus, you are on a treasure hunt rather than making bricks without straw. When you're connecting people with Jesus, you're working with a God who's pretty powerful. He's sovereign powerful and his grace is irresistible. You're working for a God who wants to deliver a higher hope to all people. And maybe the thing I can give you that might just help you as you continue in your ministry to yourself and to others of connecting to Jesus is to know and recall your own story with Jesus. If I was to ask you now, I don't care whether you're eloquent or not, but could you tell me about the time and the times where Jesus has loomed as the best hope you have? If you can't, I'd suggest that's, that's the meditation for, the rest, for today and for this week. If you can't tell me and, and tell yourself and recall to yourself, yes, I remember... I remember when I realized for the first time or matured into, depending on where you started as a kid, I remember when I realized there was no hope in Jesus. I remembered when I first wanted to sing one of our opening songs, Yes, My Hope, My Hope is Only Jesus. See, until you know that, there's still a part of you that might be somewhat nervous about uh, wanting to connect people including yourself with Jesus. Because you remember those times in the Gospels, right, when Jesus meets different people and he says, I've come to wreck your life. Remember that bit? Yeah, you do. I've come to wreck your life. Meets a woman at the well. Empowered lady. She knows how to move out of one relationship and into another one. She's getting hers. And he says, the husband you're with is not your husband. I've come to wreck your life. You know how he met that really rich guy? Guy just wanted eternal life and Jesus says, well, I've come to wreck your life. There's 12 guys here named by name, had businesses, had things going on and Jesus came to them and he said, I've come to wreck your life. You remember those bits, right? Of course you don't because it never happened. Jesus never came to say, I've come to wreck your life. He said, I've come that you might have life to the full. So how is it that the lie of the evil one has penetrated God's people to believe that God's not sovereign in choosing when he is and says he is? How is it that the lie of the evil one has come into God's people to say, sometimes when you tell people about Jesus, I'll have to make changes and that could wreck their life. or get in the way, kill their fun. If we believe that there is a higher hope and we're able to recall that Jesus is our higher hope and we do believe that since we've been justified by faith in him we have peace, shalom, wholeness, completeness with God then brothers and sisters let us be encouraged to encourage ourselves and others to connect wholly and solely with Jesus and to bravely disconnect from some of those other false idols that provide short hope or provide good sustenance but they don't stay 
Jesus never came to wreck anyone's life. He came to bring hope. Discipleship, discipleship, I sound like Sean Connery then. Discipleship, discipleship begins with connecting to Jesus. Not connecting to Fig Tree Anglican. Not connecting to a worldview. Not joining a life group. Connecting to Jesus. And so later on, as you're reflecting on your testimony, please have a bit where you talk about where your relationship with Jesus started. Not when you started coming to church. That's important. Church isn't Jesus. Not when you were given a great honor of becoming a preacher. Not when you were sent on mission. Not when you started a ministry. Not when you became a very, very loving servant. When did you meet Jesus and when did he become your highest hope? If you don't know or if you haven't yet, the best thing I can say to you is find out. Find out. Because discipleship happens when we connect with Jesus. Discipleship happens when we grow with Jesus. He called them to himself. Now look at verse 14. See, Jesus called them to himself and they came to him and he appointed 12 that they might be with him. Jesus didn't call them to himself so they could buy the Jesus of Nazareth t-shirt and then go back to Jerusalem and say, I met the dude, I met the guy. He had a box, you could tick it to say, I've met Jesus. He'd give you a t-shirt and then he could be like, I wasn't one of the ones who killed him, man. No, no, I met him. Good guy, good guy. Jesus didn't call them to himself just so that they could meet him. He called them, you can see it right there in verse 14, he appointed 12 that they might be with him because proximity matters. One of the guys, probably the most famous in the list of names here we have is a guy called Simon, whose name would change to Peter. Simon's story with Jesus starts with a desperate quest for distance. He's at a distance and it's his brother who says, met a guy, you should see him. Okay, I'll come and have a look. Simon goes on a fishing trip with Jesus. Jesus blows his mind by showing he's a better fisherman than Simon. And Simon's response is, go away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. I get too close to you. Things are going to change big time. As the biographies continue, Simon becomes a man who will be close enough to Jesus that he gets a nickname. It's Rock or Peter. I just realized Jesus might like wrestling because he's called one guy's the sons of thunder and now he's got the rock. If you know, you know. Um, One of the commentators I read said it really took Peter a while to grow into his nickname and it's true. But by close proximity to Jesus, I've looked at the house of Simon Peter in the flesh on a trip to Israel. They lived close. They worked close. uh, And the whole 12 were close. And through that time, Peter would become a man who who would confess Christ but not understand his mission. Then he'd become a man who uh, continued to watch Jesus, saw him crucified. Well, before he saw him crucified, denied Jesus continued to watch, got close, saw the resurrected Jesus. And even as Paul reports in Galatians 2, he still had his bumps when he was acting silly in Galatia. But he's a man that by the end of his life would be crucified upside down, conformed to the likeness of Jesus through close proximity with Jesus. 
Jesus calls people to connect with him that they might be with him because proximity matters. You've got to be near him. And furthermore, these 12 weren't in separate cells. They were together. For Jesus, he says, you grow as a disciple when you're near me and you're near other disciples. The truth is the best discipleship happens three feet away. See, I can say what I like up here and there'll be people. Have you ever heard a sermon? Not from me, but from one of the other guys. Where you hear something like, that's not right. And in the car on the way home, yeah, that's not right. And then, of course, your partner or your, your friend says, no, no, it is right. Here's where you're wrong. Because the preachers are never, I'm just joking. But you know how that can happen, right? There's a great, uh, there's a great courtesy you give me that the things that you need to wrestle with that I say, you let me say them and you'll wrestle with them later. Imagine if I come to lunch with you can't make it today, but maybe another week. And we sit and we talk about it. Do you think we will grow together? Of course we will, because discipleship happens best when it's just three feet away. And that's how Jesus... Why didn't Jesus just do Sermon on the Mounts? Better message. Instead, he picked 12. In this list, three are named. They're often named together because sometimes there were master classes that Jesus just did with those three. Discipleship happens best when it's three feet away. What does that mean for us? It means that if you love Christian books, that's a wonderful thing. But if you're not in the word of God, then you are missing out. You're too far away. Podcasts are good, really good, really helpful. If you're not in the word of God, then you're too far away. You've got to get close. You've got to learn to hear your father's voice. If you're watching online, God bless you. Thank you for being there. But sooner or later, if, if you're able, you need to be here. It makes a difference when we're with one another. If you're here and you haven't let yet joined a life group, you're missing out. Discipleship happens across a coffee table when we're three feet away. Significant things happen when you're just three feet away and there's a close proximity. It happens close and that's how it was in Jesus' day. That's why we believe in close. That's why we believe in growing and changing like Peter grew and changed as we walk with Jesus because discipleship happens when we grow in Jesus together. Just as everyone was getting comfortable, just as they were like, yes, he called us. Yes, we're with him. Yes, we've never gone fishing and come back without a catch anymore. This is great. The next part of discipleship arises. Verse 14 and 15. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and, and that he might send them out to preach and to have authority to drive out demons. Jesus believes that you make disciples by connecting them to himself, by growing them in himself and by sending them out for himself. And he sends them out where? He sends them out to preach. They'd be explaining much of the Torah and the good news of Jesus and things that come from the scriptures to those who are eager to hear. But they're also going to go and drive out demons. Now that might freak you out. Let's just believe that the Bible's true, that there is a demonic uh, realm and that there are demons and there is a devil. And uh, this is a realm that Jesus is going to take authority over as well. And so we can summarize here by saying Jesus sent them to preach where he is known and where he is not known that his authority might be in all places. That's how he makes disciples. He sends them out to share the overflow of the things that have been shaped in him. Why? Because um, 
he produced a heart in them that now by the power of the Holy Spirit, he is seeking to see them cultivate in another. Right? So he sends them out. And that's Philip's story. Philip's one of the guys here. Now you might go, I've heard of Philip. He's the guy, he's the guy in Acts, talks to the Ethiopian eunuch. Well, not like Philip, because he's Philip the evangelist. And uh, he talks to this guy, leads him to Christ, and then poof, disappears to another place. Whoa, that's freaky. It is freaky. And that hasn't happened to me yet. I said yet, who knows? doesn't need to happen to me either. But if you trace back to where Philip starts, you learn a lot about uh, what God's doing with Philip. Philip's a guy who uh, meets Jesus, and I'm going to jump out of Mark into John's Gospel. He meets Jesus and he goes and tells his mate Nathaniel about it. Have a look, I'll bring it up on the screen. It's John chapter 1, verse 46. Philip says, we've met the Messiah, and Nathaniel says, he's from Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? I have two answers for Nathaniel. I had a shawarma that will spin your head. That's like a, a kebab in Nazareth. So good kebabs come from Nazareth. Um, but more so, because we're talking about hope in higher things than kebabs, Philip said to Nathaniel, come and see. We're sent by Jesus with a come and see message. Not come to church and see. That, that could be a way, but it's let me show you Jesus as I know him. Let me point you to my higher hope. Come and see. See, if back in that connecting step we took where we talked about our testimony, if you know the gospel, shortest gospel I can give you, God made it, we broke it, God fixed it, and you know your testimony, then you're ready for a come see. So Jesus is sending you to cultivate the heart he has put in you by the power of the Holy Spirit in another. So he sends us with a come see message. And in just a moment, I'm going to ask you to minister to one another. So as Shari and Greg come and join me up here, they're going to help lead us in this time where we minister to one another. I'm going to ask you to sing words that aren't just words to God, but words to one another. Words that will encourage us to connect to Jesus, to grow in Jesus, and to be sent for Jesus. Words that help us to look to our higher hope. Words that I hope, I hope maybe by telling you about two more disciples uh, might speak anew to you. Let me tell you about two very enthusiastic disciples. They're so enthusiastic that one of them has the enthusiast in his name. I'm talking about the not-so-famous Simon the Zealot, in verse 18, and the infamous Judas Iscariot, in verse 19. You will notice, if you compare, for example, Mark and Luke, that they name people differently and in different orders. There's a reason for that. At the back end of Mark's list come two enthusiasts, Simon the Zealot, Zealot from Zeal, and Judas Iscariot. What's a zealot? Zealots were a Jewish sect who were particularly zealous for Jerusalem, wanting to see uh, the occupation of Jerusalem end. These are the guys who sometimes would be involved in uprising 
as their name suggests, they are zealous for seeing the kingdom of Israel re-established under the might of a military messiah. That's Simon. And Simon's a guy who is called by Jesus as a zealot, who becomes zealous for Jesus to the point that after Jesus ascends to heaven, Simon will go on with a mission. He will preach in places like Africa and like, 11, or like 10 others, he will be executed for it. Simon the zealot was also crucified. He's a martyr. He connected to Jesus, he grew in Jesus and he was sent to his death for Jesus. He held strong to the end. So where does Judas Iscariot come in? We don't talk about him too much. The name Iscariot is derived from the word Sycorus. Sycorus means dagger. Yeah, that's right, the guy with the knife in Jesus' back. Not quite. There's more to this Judas than we might realise. For how many of us have left our life and livelihood to follow a new religious teacher. There's not a church on every corner. Gone on a three-year mission. Left home. Gone with him. Been in the dangerous situations and followed. If you think Judas Iscariot was nothing but a sleeper terrorist, you haven't understood his story properly. Judas Iscariot, or Judas the Dagger, is part of what you might call the SAS of the zealots, the dagger men. You can go today to a place in Israel called Masada. It's up the top of a great big hill you can walk up. Well, it's more of a mountain. And it's a fortress. And the dagger men were like the SAS of the zealots. In AD 70, when Jerusalem was sacked by the Romans and destroyed, these guys were the last stand, fighting against the Romans, then retreating to Masada before the Romans tracked them down and did what Romans do, and the dagger men were over. Judas Iscariot, Judas the Sycorus, Judas the dagger, is quite possibly an SAS zealot. You're like, you're not going into bat for Judas, are you? Certainly not. He's the betrayer. Judas Iscariot, you're like, you're not going into bat for the guy who stole the money who sold out Jesus and in the most scoundrel thing you can imagine betrayed him with a kiss. No, I'm not going into bat for him, but I want to understand all of those steps. Why did he kiss Jesus? Because maybe Judas knew his Bible well enough to recall Psalm 2, where you kiss the son, God's military Messiah who will overthrow the enemies of God's people. And so as Mark writes it, there's something of a military scene at the end of Mark in that Garden of Gethsemane. They come with clubs and all these sorts of things. Judas, who has orchestrated this, kisses Jesus. I'm on your squad. Now go beat them all up. Judas, who had taken the money, who knows what for. What am I trying to say? Judas is a man who was zealous, but he didn't connect to Jesus he connected to a particular cause. He grew in a particular cause and sold out Jesus for a particular cause. He betrayed his Lord because he missed the Lord and instead bought into a cause. And now forevermore he's known as the betrayer.
Discipleship happens not when we join a cause, grow in a cause, or get sent for a cause. It happens when we surrender, as we're going to sing, when we come to the altar, the place of sacrifice that is Golgotha, and we say, all the hopes I had on the altar, because my hope, Jesus, went on the altar and died for me, and he is my only hope. In a moment, I'm going to lead you in a meal to celebrate this. But before I do, please stand and sing to one another and call one another to the altar that we might connect with Jesus, grow in Jesus and be sent for Jesus.